0: Deconstructing Yourself, the podcast for modern mutants interested in meditation, hardcore dharma, emptiness, the novel Dune, and much more. My name is Michael W. Taft, your host on the podcast. And in this episode, I'm speaking once again with Rick Hansen. Rick Hansen, PhD, is a psychologist, senior fellow of the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley, and New York Times best-selling author. His books include Buddha's Brain, Hardwiring Happiness, and the new book, Resilient. Rick began meditating in 1974 and teaches at meditation centers around the world. And now, without further ado, I give you the episode that I call Meditations for the End of Civilization with Rick Hansen. Rick, welcome once again to the Deconstructing Yourself Podcast. I love podcast. you, Michael. Thanks, I love you too. We just got back from a great trip with a bunch of folks to Joshua Tree, where you demonstrated your rock climbing prowess.
1: Yes, and my Captain Tripp's management prowess, curating and arranging this really cool thing.
0: Well, and like delightfully bizarre cast of characters. Yep. Who shall be nameless, except for you. Okay. I was there. I was one of the bizarre cast of characters. Okay, here's what's on my mind today. So you, Rick Hansen, are in a way known as a, let's say, positive psychology guru. You are actually a hardcore Theravada-style meditator. You know a lot about the universe way deep down into the suttas and all that, But in your popular writing, you are the hardwiring happiness, Buddha's brain. Your brain is Teflon for good things and Velcro for bad things. So you have to work on your negativity bias daily and take in the good kind of guy. That's your public persona. And, you know, more power to you. We need more ways to learn how to feel better, especially in the West. There's that pervasive sense that there's something wrong with me and I don't know what it is and I got to fix it. And You know, I feel like your books do a good job of addressing those issues and others. However, there's a side to you that I know that I don't think is out there in your public persona at all, which is you're like a realist. You're a realpolitik to the nth degree. You're sometimes planning for, you know, what are you going to do when the nukes hit, planning for some really hardcore, serious, difficult stuff. And you're completely comfortable with that world, rather than just, you know, only wanting to talk about the positive side, you're actually completely comfortable going to the other side, which I think is really fascinating for someone who's teaching what you're teaching. But because you have taught so much of the other stuff, and because I'm who I am, and my audience is who they are, I want you to go to the other side today where it's not meta or taking in feelings of upliftment today, which even though I'm teasing you about that is obviously hugely important, but rather, you know, touching the dark side in a complete, full contact, serious, realistic way. And for the beginning of the conversation, the part of the dark side I want to throw out as an open question is, you know, we seem to be on the edge of climate collapse. Like all the latest predictions in the last year are everything that they said was going to happen in 2100 is going to happen in like five or 10 years. The Arctic sea ice is almost gone. I mean, things are rather intense when we really look at this very directly. And then in the States, I mean, we're locking children in cages, and we're separating them from their families. Racist slurs and even death threats are becoming ever more common. It's an intense moment in the world. And one of the reasonable responses is, well, let's take in the good. I think that's very powerful and helpful. And another reasonable response is we got to like, be able to look at some of this stuff head on, very clearly, very realistically, as part of our practice, and be able to handle it right? There's a future coming that might be not that fun. And sort of the hippie fantasies of, you know, the everyone's enlightened future may not be where we're going. So I'm just going to throw that out and say, I feel like you have some stuff to say about that. That's my opening salvo there. And I know you're lightheaded and your hummingbird metabolism (laughs) is revved up, but just have at it.
1: Well, there was a lot in what you said and feel free obviously to kind of jump in because I have a lot to say about the lot that you said. And the first thing I'd like to say is in a sense to set the record straight. So right now I'm on my next book working title, Neurodharma, The Deepest Roots of the Highest Happiness. And in the doing of it, I've had occasion to go back and flick through some of the previous things I've written and really running through all of them is this major jaundiced view of reality as full of challenges, other people pose challenges for us, our own bodies pose challenges for us, and is a major emphasis on building strengths inside for the difficult things. And it goes to some of my own background as a really, really miserable kid when I finally realized about age 15, ballpark, because I was reading Dune at the time, and the main character was 15. I identified with him, and his background in development and training through his mother, the Bene Gesserit witch. So you're young Paul Atreides in your mind? In the sense of, wow, you can develop yourself. No matter how crappy the past has been, no matter how miserable you are in the present, you can always learn and grow and train from here and you need to do that and if you do do that which is under your own control it just might help things go better and that was a huge light bulb moment for me right around age 15 i began to realize that i could always learn from here that learning broadly defined was the most important thing so in effect learning to learn was the most important learning of all because that's the superpower as a word that grows all the other superpowers and it was really situated for me in this way. Also, in my own background in wilderness, and you saw you know, a teeny smidge of the, some of that background, you want to think, what's in your pack? Do you have food? Do you have water? Do you have a jacket? Do you have an extra jacket even for your friend? One of my longtime rock climbing buddies would never realize that it was going to get cold in the afternoon. So I would deliberately bring a little extra something for him. So for me, this focus on so-called taking in the good, at bottom, it's based on a hard-headed, clear-eyed appraisal of the challenges of life, which then take us into the question of how do we grow the strengths we need? How do we grow resources inside ourselves? Which then takes one into the very practical question of how does the brain change for the better, which is in a two-stage process, as you know, in which first we must experience what we want to grow, and then second, help it become a lasting physical change of neural structure and function. Without that physical change, no learning, no growth, no healing, momentarily pleasant, but impermanent transient washes right through us. We need to move from states to traits. So I've spent a lot of time focusing on the how of that. As it turns out, most of the experiences of what we want to grow inside are hedonically positive. So their positive hedonic tone, as it were, the feeling tone in the Vedanas and Pali in, in Buddhism is a signal to us that oh, it feels good to be grateful. It feels good to have accomplished something. It feels good to have a sense of the goodness inside you. It feels good to calm down. It feels good to feel like your needs matter too. It feels good to, in a clear-eyed way, recognize injustice. So we take in those good experiences. And it's been interesting to me, as a guy who's been saying this for over 30 years, easily in print, how often this hard-headed clarity about growing strengths inside becomes trivialized and smallified and i have this routinely happen to me i'll present this material in much this kind of tough coach wreck, don't screw around kids kind of way and i'll have intelligent educated people come up to me at a conference let's say for therapists or to the general public and they'll go wow that was great stuff pause i need to smell the flowers more and i'm like "Ugh." Well, yeah, nothing wrong with smelling the flowers. But as soon as you get into that framing of it, you're on the slippery slope now quickly of trivializing it. And no, 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 no. What I'm speaking here is much more existential. A, no one can stop you from growing and developing and learning every day. And B, no one can do it for you. And so for me, that's kind of the framing here on this taking the good stuff. All that said, yeah, I think, why not turn to the good? Why not take in the good? Why not let it land that this moment is enough as it is? Why not let it land that yellow daffodils are beautiful? And I could totally get geeked out and really stoked by the tattoos on your bulging forearms, Markle. right now. Like, why not open to that? And actually, why not recognize, as the Buddha taught, that as we cultivate the sense of enoughness in the moment, the fuels for the fires of craving fall away. Cultivation undoes craving over time if there's actually internalization of these beneficial experiences. Why not? Right? Why not grow the factors of awakening? Why not grow the spiritual powers, as it were in the Buddhist tradition, or draw on those other traditions, if you like? Why not? And definitely... Now I'm going to move into your topic here. Uh, you're, you're, you're you're
0: done defending yourself, okay? <laughs> or setting a record straight.
1: <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with defending yourself. That's as well. true. You know, if That's you've been. True. So I just want to say that I find it really interesting, uh, almost culturally, how rapidly people move into this kind of trivializing, positive psychologizing of things, which is then really, really easy to discredit.
0: Yeah, and. From my end, of course, I did uh, give the disclaimer. Yeah, yeah, you're cool. I know you know. I know that you know that I know that you're cool. (laughs) Lately, I've been thinking about how the jhanas, you know, relate to taking in the good. There's a whole giant thing we could talk about there. But let's instead go into the apocalyptic end of things.
1: Well, it's funny. A bit of a public acknowledgement of something I've never done before, which is Jan and I were laughing. Jan's my wife and i say so honey what did you think about when you were 12 13 15 years old before you fell asleep she would say oh i would think about the guy i was gonna be with and our first kiss and great stuff great stuff great stuff so rick what did you think about as you fell asleep i i thought about after the nuclear war or i thought about some kind of situation in which i was on my own my family was alive but they were far far away i was on my own and what would I do to deal with it? And even when I was fifteen and just kind of traveling about for various reasons, I would make notes about the kinds of things I would want to put in my mom's shelter. And you're sci- like reading
0: science fiction novels yeah, like Alas science, Babylon exactly. or something. And
1: I think there was something I'm a therapist after all. I think there was something not entirely <laughs> psychologically healthy going on in me at the time. I was pretty miserable. And these were fantasies of escape and fantasies in a way of efficacy of what could I do? How could I be prepared? How would I draw upon that stuff? There wasn't violence in my fantasies, but there was a lot about preparation. And so I think that we need to be really careful about, particularly in certain kinds of personalities, maybe my own that can draw us into end of world fantasy. It's such a classic theme in literature. People can get kind of bound up around that, kind of twisted around that on the one hand. On the other hand, I'm a subscriber to Stephen Jay Gould's theory of punctuated equilibrium as well how evolution biologically has been characterized. Things tend to go along steadily until the bottom falls out. For example, There's this wonderful essay in The New Yorker recently, you may know it, that is about a paleontologist who has found a deposit in North Dakota, actually in the same county as my family's longstanding ranch in North Dakota, where my father was born late in 1918. They have found a site where there's clear evidence of the hour after the asteroid hit the Earth 65 million years ago and changed everything. So every so often in human history, it's really clear that seriously bad things can happen. So for me, frankly, there's a sweet spot in which we're clear-eyed, trying to see clearly, not tilting one way or another. Ignorance is a root of suffering. We're not trying to be deluded, overly pessimistically and alarmistly, or on the other hand, overly optimistically looking out with rose-colored glasses, and then meanwhile, give thought to what can I actually do myself that's rational. Given my values, one's own values, given one's own resources, given one's own karmas, your responsibilities at this point in this life, what can you do? I definitely have given some thought to that. And to me, it seems not unreasonable to do that.
0: Yeah, maybe even more than not unreasonable at this point, maybe absolutely necessary and really important. So what about people who are, you know, hardcore meditators who are really interested in working with this in their practice? How do you see them handling something like this? Is this a case where let's do a bunch of metta to build the resilience we need to, you know, deal with the Mad Max future? Or do you have a different sort of way of approaching it? Well, let me
1: first just express a personal opinion. I feel there are topics about which I have some expertise. I'm willing to claim hopefully appropriate authority in those regards. In this territory, I'm just a guy at the end of the bar. Well, he's not too smashed who has opinions about things. And then people can see for themselves if those opinions have any merit to them. And as some context here, man, we are so lucky We have today, we're 13 and a plus billion years into the universe. You know, life's been on the planet, three and a half billion. We're sitting on evolutionary processes that have gradually cleared away all kinds of things so that what's left is the human intellect and our way of being with each other. It's really, really precious. And life has really sucked for most humans throughout most history for a variety of reasons. And we have the opportunity now To not have it suck and the thought that we're just gonna piss it away by allowing various elites to you know drive us over the edge of the cliff as they make money along the way makes my heart sore so there's a heart soreness one of the things that taking in the good helps you appreciate is how much good there is and therefore how much good we can so easily lose so that's kind of contextual for me In terms of appraising major threats, I think there are three major threats that are massively game-changing threats. Humans have muddled through all kinds of things, up and down. It's these three major game-changers that I just want to mention in passing, which are one, a thermonuclear exchange between the US and Russia, massive scale, that would have a lot of consequences, obviously, in the Northern Hemisphere. That's a game-changer. Second, runaway ai that doesn't think that happily about humans that would be a genie that's out of the bottle that we have no longer any influence over
0: human bodies are wasting a lot of atoms that could be turned into paper clips or whatever potentially
1: potentially but whatever the genie which would start to have almost godlike powers in our own technologies whatever it does would be beyond our control and we would be the creators of that genie who then let it out of the bottle That could all be a game changer. And then the third game changer is totalitarian regimes that use surveillance technologies, genetic engineering, and other purposes for a level of totalitarianism that we've never seen in human history at all. That would make the Roman Empire or the worst of Stalinism or Nazism, the control currently of the government in China, just seem like child's play.
0: So I'm sitting here shocked that you're not mentioning climate change, since that one is actually literally occurring as we speak, not just potentially, but actually.
1: Yeah, that's a very fair point. I should include that. My own guy at the end of the bar knowledge about that is that it's going to be terrible, especially for the one to two billion most vulnerable, poorest people on this planet who are having visited upon them the consequences of the greed of the developed nations of the world and now the greed of the elites and the developing nations of the world. It's a terrible, terrible thing. But my own understanding, which is fairly deeply informed on the science of it, of that even in a worst-case scenario, the human species, particularly the two-thirds, the half of the human species that will live into the 22nd and 23rd century most likely with some terrible wars and resource wars and instability and climate refugees driving instabilities and creating extremisms and exploited by authoritarian demagogues of various stripes, blah, 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 blah. But if we look out to the 23rd, 24th, 25th century, The planet's going to be seriously screwed and my view is that the human species will still be here living under different conditions in different parts of the world with a lot of horribleness along the way. And I want to stress that I'm not trying to at all diminish the worst case scenarios. I'm appalled by them and I would do everything I can in my own power to halt carbon emissions and to do everything I can to shift public policy to really, really doing all that we can that we could start doing today. We just like the will. And that's where I think the deep root of most of our human troubles reside in our governance and how governance went so badly wrong when agriculture came in 10,000 years ago. I would love to talk with you about that and what we can do to restore healthy governance. Because, you know, a long-time therapist and also someone who's observed organizations and countries, when you have good process, you tend to have good product. And if you don't get your process right, you'll never get your product right. And so process for us at a human level has to do with governance and power. And now we manage the concentrations of wealth and power that tend to arise in human society. These concentrations were managed relatively well in hunter-gatherer bands for Three reasons, which I can talk about if you like. And they've been terribly managed over the last 10,000 years, which have led to life being really horrible for most people while being okay for some and sweet for the few.
0: So we have this as our current potential reality unfolding. So.
1: Right. How do you sleep at night? Yeah. How do you sit through the next breath? Maybe I'll just offer a couple things from my own practice. One, it's to appreciate in your own practice, moment by moment, that the lights could go out at any moment and to live with that imminent possibility continuously that the movie of your own vr stream of consciousness, a virtual reality continually constructed by physical processes entwined with the, everything else, that that could all end momentarily. And it's a practice to come into the realness of that, the sense of the radical transience of everything, the groundlessness. These are classic themes. I'm not inventing them. I'm pointing to them. And there's a level here of coming to terms with all this that's very individual, has to do with some classic themes around really facing impermanence and being okay with that fundamentally, and grappling with some of the things that sometimes come with that, like a sense of despair or world weariness, or in Pali Nibida, translated sometimes as disgust, probably better as disenchantment. You wake up from the spell. And as a person practices, right there, I call it at the front edge of now, right in the present moment, which draws one naturally into a growing sense of not-self, of simply complex, compounded phenomena arising and passing, arising and passing, ownerlessly, agentlessly that itself i think can prepare us at a personal level to practice with the macro scale of potential apocalyptic stuff
0: yeah maranasati or remembrance of death type practice is hardcore old school bare metal buddhism right that's very metal that's right that seems to be the kind of thing you're pointing
1: to. Yeah, and the way it manifests moment by moment, the death of this moment into the birth of the next, which dies as it is being born. And what's the line from Dylan? Anyone not busy being born is busy dying?
0: Something like that. You old guys know that stuff. I
1: yeah. Think. So it's a great line, whoever came up with that. If you're not busy being born, you're busy dying. And that's the truth of it. Mm. So and we're busy both, being born and dying continuously, simultaneously. So that's profound practice right there, I think.
0: Well, I do personally find it might just be a quirk of my personality or whatever, but sitting with the worst case scenario or sitting with the fact that you could die at any moment in a very, you know, naked way, just being with that reality always calms me right down. There's something very deeply soothing about that thought, not in a nihilistic or suicidal way, but just like, okay, I don't need to resist that idea anymore or somehow pretend it's not there. Or the effort of pushing that away is far more than just letting it be welcome in my mind stream.
1: Yeah, and the kind of practice we're talking about, which has been laid out, by many great teachers of being really radically receptive with the arising moment as you radically surrender to it on its way out the door continuously, is living with dying continuously so that as far as your own subjectivity is concerned, there is the last arising. Right? Reality continues, other people continue, but you are dead, it has stopped. For you, at least in this embodied life, It's just another ending. You're used to it more. There's no difference. It's just, it was the last ending that happened before another arising, and there just happened to be no more arising for you as of that moment. And there's preparation there that's very real in the flesh, and and I, I personally practice with that. I'm kind of excited about it.
0: What practice do you do specifically?
1: My practice a lot is to be more continuous and more total in the practice. It's a practice of practice, but the practice itself a lot is to really abide as close as I can to the emergent edge of the subjective now with a massive sense of what is emergent in the subjective now is simply a local patterning of consciousness entwined with all of reality ultimately. So it's a local expression of the vastness of reality with an ongoing intimation of unconditionality.
0: It sounds really conceptual.
1: Oh, it's totally felt. The words are yeah. conceptual. I don't know. I wish I had better words. But the feeling is, to me, that's the truth. It's more mm-hmm. like coming into the truth. The truth is, hello, the truth. The now is infinitely thin. The truth is our bodies are eddies in the vast stream. Our thoughts and feelings are just emergent patternings of the moment. And that's the truth of things. So what I'm really talking about is viscerally. Accepting and being all right with and abiding as that truth.
0: Mm. Okay, so remembrance of death, maranasati type practices, and the practice you're describing is number one. What are the other?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. A second thing I would say that's relevant here could be summarized in lots of different ways fight the good fight, or I love the Dylan Thomas line. Time held me green and dying, though I sang in my chains like the sea. Or, as Neil Young put it, rocking in the free world. In other words, you just keep banging at it and really claim for yourself an unintimidated mind. I think of a line apparently from the Buddha more exactly. We should say that it is said that the Buddha said. The quotation is, uh, one who can recite the sacred scriptures should not be called wise. One who is peaceable, friendly, and fearless should be called wise. So that combination to be peaceable, friendly, and fearless in the face of oppression, injustice, authoritarian BS, and all the rest of that is really, really important. So I think a piece of this practice is to claim to oneself again and again and again in the face of the forces that try to make you feel powerless. Sometimes because they're motivated to make you feel powerless, because that's where their incentives lie. In the face of all that, to keep claiming for yourself what you can do, what you can do inside your own mind in terms of how you reserve the right to think about things. Even if you can't reveal to the outer world what you really think because maybe you're in a situation like in a gulag or a prison somewhere, you really can't afford to reveal how you really, really think. But in the sacred temple inside your own mind, you reserve the power to think what you think, see what you see deep down inside and other forms, to ally with others, to join with them in common cause, to cheer on your team that's on the playing field, even though you're sitting in the stands with tons of skin in the game, but you don't have the ball in your hands, you're not a congressman or congresswoman, you're not a commentator on television, you don't have that power, but you can cheer your team on to claim that. I'll tell you a little thing that I think is okay to say. I had a chance to have dinner with a congressman, a representative from our district in the House of Representatives in the U.S. Congress soon after the kind of sort of election in 2016. And this was a few weeks later. Most of us, liberal by nature, were in some shock. What to do? What can we do? And he said something I've thought about many times since. Send money to lawyers. In other words, do what you can often is to support people who are fighting the good fight, the ACLU, others who are really doing what they can. So I think that's the second thing I really try to hold on to in my practice. And as a therapist, as uh, therapists know, learned helplessness is a fast track to depression. The felt sense of entrapment, futility, and defeat, thus helplessness, is something that we mammals are extremely vulnerable to overlearning, overacquiring over-acquiring all too quickly. So it's really important to kind of lean away from helplessness and to do everything you can to lean into the felt sense of efficacy and agency, even at the level of simply choosing to reach for the salt instead of the pepper.
0: Yeah, isn't it the case that with learned helplessness, doing anything at all that feels useful or efficacious actually begins to counteract the learned helplessness?
1: Yeah, that's actually true. It just takes many, many times as many experiences, usually, because as an aspect of the negativity bias, we're very vulnerable to feeling like, meh, there's nothing we can do. And I think it's so important in ways large and small, in your intimate relationships, in your job, and in the public square, to keep reclaiming for yourself that sense that you are more like a hammer and less like a nail. Even as many of the hammers of life bang on you, the more hammers that are banging on you, the more important it is to pick up the hammers you can.
0: Yeah, I've noticed that two things that have been really helpful for me personally are one is to give money to, in this case, the ACLU. I feel like they're doing good stuff and I know they're out there essentially Doing what I wish I could be doing, and I'm not trained to do that. So I give them money and also paying for good journalism. Like, for example, I'll contribute to The Guardian or to The Washington Post.
1: Mother Jones, I send money to.
0: I notice that that helps with the feeling of learned helplessness, but we are, you know, monkeys. Yeah. And both of those things are a little abstract. Hmm. I'm not sure my, you know, like monkey really understands that when I'm clicking that thing for the ACLU, Hmm. that I'm doing something. And so even though that is actually truly useful and helpful in the world, I wonder if there's stuff that is just more physically real Hmm. that might bite a little deeper into the wood, you know, of undoing the negativity bias.
1: Well, at the political level, there are many things people can do. As you know, people can demonstrate, they can volunteer, they can stuff envelopes, they can go door to door, they can do so many, many things. And that really matters. You can do that in the political process in general. To be really, really blunt, as important as it is for individuals in terms of global climate change to reduce their footprint, to buy carbon offsets if they can do that, things like that. Frankly, in America, being blunt, the best thing we can do for climate change is to elect Democrats. It's pretty straightforward because at the public policy level, the impact is so much greater than what any individual can do, just about, in terms of their own footprint.
0: Yeah, support AOC and so on.
1: Yeah, so I think that's true politically. At the individual level... I love embodied practice. In other words, I'm making a gesture now. I'm moving my hand around, and I'm also being careful not to bang the microphone and so forth. You're failing, but yeah. You're failing occasionally. And that's a field of action. That's a field of action with my body. Where do I choose to put my hand? How do I choose to regulate my hand so it moves into the air, but it doesn't hit the microphone? And I think... Especially for people who have a history of learned helplessness or are in situations in which they factually are really being pushed around by all kinds of conditions, maybe external conditions like poverty or the neighborhood they're in, the people they live with that jerk on the floor above their apartment who will not stop dancing at three in the morning on the floor with pogo sticks or something. Or their own health conditions, the chronic pain in their back or the fact that they're aging or, you know, maybe developing a terminal illness. The more that things are oppressing you, that you have no influence over, the more important it is to really let yourself feel very concretely what it's like right now for the hand to extend to the glass, which I'm doing, choosing the lifting, to lift it up, choosing to bring it to my lips, Choosing not to take a drink, as it will interrupt my little rant here, and then choosing to set it down again. What's that feel like in the body again and again and again? So that's something people can definitely do.
0: So these micro moments of agency, even on this very, very small level, Mm -hmm. if they are met with a lot of clarity and let's say mindfulness, can begin to actually work against the helplessness or the learned helplessness. Yeah. And you're
1: taking in the good, in a sense, you're installing the experience as lasting change in your brain again and again and again of the embodied sense of agency. You could do it as well with words, the words we choose to express, the words we choose to restrain. You can do it with your own mind. The thoughts you choose to feed, the thoughts you choose to stop feeding. And obviously we can do it in our relationships with other people. The people we choose to touch, the people we choose not to touch, the people we don't let touch us. Um, These are all ways to reclaim that sense of potency that are really important. Excellent. So what about the third thing? The third practice, if you will, looking in my own heart, if if I have one, is so interesting. Like I feel a lot of this loving, poignant sweetness that loves the world and sorrows at where it's going while simultaneously feeling really, really rested in a kind of profound peacefulness. And I don't say that as a brag, I say it as from the inside out, I stare at that way it is with amazement and also with gratitude for the wisdom teachings that have been offered to me over the years of my life, including, frankly, Michael, from you. And then I look outside my own experience to what my teachers have said over the years in including many who are not alive, all we have is their kind of words and the energy in their words, handed down to us over the centuries, they too describe that intersection of compassion and equanimity. And a compassion that in what I was describing there also has a a gratitude and a sweetness and a joy in it. It's kind of a joyful heart soreness, a tenderhearted love for this world that's being destroyed. And yet also an equanimity, a recognition of, you know, shit has happened And I don't mean that in the way that people often do, as shrug, oh well, nothing you can do, too bad. No, I mean it as really recognizing that, you know, asteroids hit the Earth and wipe out 99.99% of the life, including a lot of our warm-blooded mammalian ancestors who loved their little rat-like babies. And they, too, were wiped out that day, as well as a whole bunch of other creatures. And, you know, we're not so special, actually, to not have dictators ruin the lives of so many people i don't mean again to justify dictators or terribleness but to kind of hold it in a bigger perspective also i as i think you are as well i'm very aware that we're you know living on a kind of little rinky dink rocky planet around a middling sun on the edge of a middling galaxy amidst roughly two trillion other galaxies So there's a way of kind of holding what happens here in a wider, broader way while simultaneously loving it and sorrowing over it and simultaneously fighting the good fight while singing in your chains like the sea.
0: So you're describing, rather beautifully, you're describing a kind of state of mind or state of being but not exactly about how to work your way there or how to engage <laughs> with, you know, beginning to feel that really interesting balance that's always hard to describe because it seems so contradictory between compassion and equanimity. Yeah. I think it's interesting that they're both brahma right? Yeah, divine abodes, yeah. Yeah.
1: Livable in this world, where do you dwell? What's your dwelling place? Yeah, I reflect on that a lot. Where do you dwell? It's kind of a variation of what's in your wallet, right? Where do you dwell and who are you becoming? And frankly, who you are becoming tomorrow is based a lot on where you dwelt today, right? Your brain takes its shape from where your mind rests. So how do you do that? I'm thinking right here of my two kids. Really kind of brings it down to earth where you love them and you know that they too will die. I was reflecting earlier about, honestly, I, I feel really, really at peace with my own dying. I'm really sad, Michael, that you're going to die too. You know, it's kind of how it shows up a lot. We're okay with our own death, but it's that others have to go. It really wounds our heart, really is a weight on our heart.
0: I think a lot about nature and a walk in the park or at the seashore or whatever, mm-hmm. and do bird watching and watch the wildlife around. And that's the one that really gets me, the fact that their environments are being destroyed, the Mm. fact that they, you know, last year I got very involved with this family of white-tailed kites, and I watched them build their nest and mate Mm. and have four babies, and the babies grew up, and I was just watching this every day. And I realized, you know, wow, later that same year, we had the giant fire up by... Chico and Paradise, California and, you know, all the smoke and it drove them out of their nest and so on. It's intense. And so that idea that I feel very, very comfortable with my own extinction, but yeah, the extinction of others is, especially if it's painful, Mm -hmm. is very poignant and hurts. Yeah. Even as a concept.
1: Yeah. You asked basically, how do we develop compassion? How do we develop equanimity? And how do we develop the real-time felt sense of the two together in our experience, right? And I fear that I would say things that we've all heard before about those two questions. How do we develop compassion? How do we develop equanimity? And how do we help them develop each other? because equanimity enables us to be more and more profoundly tender-hearted and compassionate. And there are ways in which somehow, in ways that continue to be somewhat mysterious to me as even an evolutionary neuropsychologist, how is it somehow that opening your heart wide actually calms you down? <laughs> into equanimity. Like, how does that work? I get how equanimity serves compassion. I'm still trying to understand how compassion is a factor of equanimity. It's a work in progress, right? I think people have different ways into this also. And there are different paths for different kinds of people. My own nature, I guess, is whatever it is. I've always been really appreciative of whatever life has in it. While also being really pretty dispassionate, spock-like in my kind of forty thousand light year view on things. And it has worked for me to really allow myself to, you know, suck the juice out of squeeze the orange every day, to really be just blown away by awestruck gratitude. Somebody introduced me to the word gop. Apparently, it's a Gaelic word or something, G-A-W-P, just gawping at the realityness of reality, moment by moment by moment. In a funny kind of way, for me at least, that willingness to just be blown away by the amazingness of everything, including the seemingly least among us, you know, the grain of sand, the drop of water, the blade of grass, like, wow. That has actually helped me become calmer and stronger somehow, because I've just been opened into that and that's why I think it's important not to trivialize this capacity for awestruck gratitude at a chocolate chip or a smile or you know the fact of flush toilets or the white-tailed hawk soaring in the sky oh my goodness wow on the one hand also it has been a service to me and I'm just speaking personally it may or may not have any use for others to be able to really recognize Extremely dispassionately and clearly just the way it is, universe bubbled up into existence, stars formed, they blew up and produced heavy elements like iron or carbon or oxygen, which then over billions of years drifted through space to form rocky planets like our own just far enough away from the sun so that water could remain liquid on the surface. And the conditions for life seemed very, very conducive. And then the game began. And yet it took over 3 billion years, essentially, for multi-celled creatures to arise. It took a long time and a lot of contingencies along the way, including big rocks hitting this planet in about a six minute window about an eight minute window given how fast the earth goes around the sun that if the earth were not here at exactly that moment in that eight minute window the giant asteroid six miles long roughly would have just passed on either side of us and we would not be here today maybe there'd be some kind of super intelligent velociraptors here today or something else might have happened along the way like to just to appreciate the fact of all that and the fact that what is happening here on earth is just truly, truly a local expression. You say it seems conceptual. It's described conceptually, but it's flatly true that whatever is happening locally in your brain or my brain or the brains of people listening or in the lives of people listening or in the lives their children or others may have, you know, a hundred years from now, it's just determined, is set in motion by so many dominoes falling cascading over the course of this universe, and it's impersonal. It's not about us. Inside it, us suffers. We feel, we suffer, we love, we lose. But that whole process is vast and impersonal. And for me, that understanding of the fact of it all, weirdly, feeds my awestruck gratitude. I get to be here, given all of it. Well, I kind of think there's a fourth practice for dealing with our crazy times. Yeah, I think, at least for me, with my Spock-like nature, trying to understand what the heck's going on, including how did we get here? What are the causes and conditions that led to all this? For me, there's something about coming to a clarity, hopefully it's a correct clarity and not a delusional clarity, is actually calming, even if you don't know what to do about it having a sense of the nature of the problem. And I think whether it's clarity about the societal level, the political level, or clarity in your own life, understanding why your body really hurts. Maybe there's nothing you could do about it, but now you finally have a diagnosis. What's the diagnosis? So you have a meta-narrative, and you want to share it with us? I have a diagnosis, man, for why things went so terribly wrong starting 10,000 years ago. I'm on the edge of my seat. All right. So I asked myself, what the heck? How... Is it that in large-scale societies, which is to say with more than 100 members, why is it that things have been so crummy for the last 10,000 years for most people? Game of Thrones, much of the time. And recently in America, how in the world has it happened that we have this election in which roughly half the people sit it out and we end up with someone who lost in the popular vote by nearly 3 million people, squeaked in with about 80,000 votes max distributed across three states in America, and is now sitting in the Oval Office. I'm like, whoa, well, how did this happen, right? So I wanted to step back and go 10,000, actually closer to 15,000 years ago.
0: Great. I mean, it's zombie ice dragons as far as Game of Thrones is concerned.
1: Okay, good. So as hopefully most people know, our human ancestors lived in small hunter-gatherer bands throughout all of our tenure on the planet, which is now roughly 300,000 years in terms of anatomically modern humans. Maybe there's been some additional subtle genetic mutations along the way involving fo- Fox P so forth gene and all the rest of that. But basically, people who look like you and me wandering around you know, Ethiopia 300,000 years ago. And then another 2 million years before that, our hominid ancestors were using tools to make tools. They were manufacturing tools. And even before that, their primate ancestors were also living in small hunter-gatherer bands. So this is the context in which, especially over the last several million years, and certainly the last several hundred thousand years, That's been the crucible of human evolution, in which bands, this is social brain theory in a nutshell, in which small hunter-gatherer bands needed to very, very, very effectively cooperate internally and routinely be aggressive externally. And that's how they passed on genes that passed on genes, including increasing the likelihood of genes being passed down that their kin or even distant relatives inside their bands shared with them. So the frame in which these bands had to make decisions. Do we hunt here or hunt there? Do we stick around, do we leave? Do we just fight that other tribe or do we get out of this valley? What are we gonna do, right? That's politics, that's governance, that's group decision-making at the human scale that existed almost all of the time that our species or our relevant ancestors have been on this planet. Well, what's really interesting about living with 30 to 50 people your whole life, because that's the natural size of a typical hunter-gatherer band, in maybe some kind of loose, loose, clannish, sort of, maybe, association with a handful of other bands, surrounded by strangers who were dangerous. What is it like to live with 30 to 50 people most of your life? Three conditions are present. Common truth. You can't hide the monkey year after year after year when you're living together with people you can't hide who's screwing who who's being screwed by who you can't hide who's cheating you can't really hide the consequences of decisions so we have common truth also there's common welfare as an inherent condition in other words for healthy human politics there's common welfare what happens to you happens to me because we're related you go down i go down you prosper i prosper and also, we share blood. You're my cousin. You're my brother. You're my brother's wife. We're related to each other. Our welfare is common. And then the third condition is also common justice. As best we can tell, human hunter-gatherer bands that have been studied today, there are you know differentials of status and power, and, then, and sometimes there's a kind of hereditary quality to it. But on the whole, if leaders, if warriors, if shamans, if chiefs are jerks, Eventually something happens. If only you know, some other guys in the tribe go in and whoop on them in the middle of the night and say, yo, you can't keep doing it like that. Also, there's common justice in the sense that leaders in these bands have to see the consequences of their choices. They have to look in the face of the mother who lost her child because of a decision that leader made. That's common justice. Well, so far so good. Then along comes agriculture. What were we thinking, right? As soon as you have agriculture, including domestication of animals, starting roughly 10,000 years ago and then spreading throughout the world, you begin to accumulate. You start having surpluses of goods, which then enable concentrations of wealth, which then enable concentrations of power, sometimes aided through religious authority, priests who will justify your rule. And that's been the story. Of human politics essentially for the last 10,000 years in which those three fundamental conditions got blown up no longer is truth common because if you're in the capital you can hide from the provinces what's really going on you can certainly hide inside the palace walls behind the palace walls what's really going on so in these days as well lots and lots of things can be hidden or People who have tons of wealth and power can attack the capacity to discern the truth or share the truth with other people. Truth is no longer common these days. Second, welfare. Nope, with agriculture, you no longer have common welfare. People get rich, they get well fed. Famines proceed outside the castle walls, it doesn't affect them. If the ordinary people prosper, that hardly changes the lives of the wealthy elites. So they're not terribly incented to make sure that the common people prosper. So-called trickle-down theory doesn't. It doesn't trickle down. And even during the democratization of much of the world, which is welcome, still we've had simultaneous tremendous concentrations or increases rather of wealth inequality over the last generation or so. The last thing is common justice gets blown up too. You start having rich man's law, poor man's law. Routinely, people suffering terrible consequences for their misdeeds while the kings and queens and princes and princesses get off scot-free. We see that today in which people can buy. You know, good lawyers who get them off and people who don't have access to that get railroaded into long sentences. So I'm really crystal clear on the diagnosis of the problem. I only have half of a solution, if that, but I think this account is accurate. And if we are to have sanity, for example, if we are to have the governance and the politics that can make the kind of decisions that will really regulate carbon emissions with obvious solutions like carbon taxes and other sorts of things, to have any kind of a prayer of that being possible, we need to find ways to restore these three fundamental conditions for healthy human politics, common truth, common welfare, and common justice in a world with pushing toward eight billion humans as one big tribe, and a world in which it's very easy for concentrations of wealth and power to blow up these three fundamental conditions. So that's my rant. And when I began to realize that that's a major reason, maybe a deeply rooted reason why things have gone so badly over the last 10,000 years, including the last 10 years, it gave me some peace. And now I'm busy thinking about, hmm, what can we do about it?
0: Okay, so surely you're not saying the problem is literally farming and you know animal husbandry. So it comes back to somehow this has allowed us to live under conditions that we didn't evolve to live under, to live under these conditions of lack of common truth, lack of common welfare, lack of common justice. Now, you intriguingly said you have half a solution. So,
1: Well, if I could just really underline, politics is a dirty word sometimes in spiritual communities. And we're described sometimes as the clever ape. We're really the political ape. In other words, many scientists will put it this way, that the primary adaptation of the evolving hominid and then human species over the last three or so million years is to group living and those who are most able to have good politics. I'm using the term generally for decisions that have to do with power and the allocation of resources. Bands that had good politics outcompeted other bands, and they were more able to get their genes woven into the human DNA. So governance, politics, is critically important, and bad politics is the root of so many issues if you think about okay what would make it go better in america let's say or what would make it go better in russia or china or the sudan let's say would be for a kind of politics that would enable i think of it kind of like 80 15 and 5 that would enable the 80 percent of the population to reclaim power and governance for their own benefit which will perhaps be resisted by the 15 who are in cahoots of the five to oppress the 80. To me, that's very, very fundamental. So wrapping our arms around reclaiming healthy human politics is actually really, really fundamental. And everything that blows up healthy human politics, healthy human governance is part of the problem. So this priority to me needs to be seen squarely. You want to deal with global climate change? Fix human politics. You wanna deal with the oppression of different minorities, fix human politics. You wanna give women the rights that are long overdue in Saudi Arabia or other parts of the world, fix the politics because that's the root of everything else. And it doesn't mean that we'll be in a utopian world. With healthy politics, you know, in tribes, people disagree, they bicker, they get physical, stuff happens, it's not always fair, gossip occurs, but it's not as crazy as is enabled by these incredible concentrations of wealth and thus power that have been afforded by agriculture. I don't want to go back to the stone age. I like ibuprofen and ESPN and a, you know a cold beer occasionally, but I think we really need to wrap our arms around this. So how to do it? My half-baked. I have a half-baked idea. Or I have half an idea.
0: Well, it's got to be some kind of paleo, gluten-free, half-baked idea just That's, that's it. That's yeah. it. That's it.
1: Well, Like I say, it's half of a good idea, and I'm working on it. And my half a good idea has three parts to it, because, of course, I'm Spock. This is how I think. But it's only half of a good idea. But let me just kind of quickly name the three parts. One, I think the basis for common welfare and common justice is common truth. I think much as the truth is what sets us free, much as ignorance is the root of all suffering, blah, blah, Fundamentally, if we obscure the facts we're really in deep trouble. On the other hand, I'm willing to basically place my bets on humanity that if people really know what the facts are, really, and are grounded in factuality, and if fact finding and fact sharing is not continually attacked, including by just throwing a whole bunch of mud in the water through with disinformation and attacks on journalists and scientists and so forth, that we're going to muddle our way pretty well forward. So I think factuality is critically important. And so I think that becomes again and again and again the fundamental principle here. I mean, for me, if I were to say politics, it really boils down to what every kindergarten teacher does say or should say, tell the truth and play fair. As long as we tell the truth and play fair, we're going to muddle forward. It's when there are attacks on truth-telling and fair play that we really really get in trouble and the foundation of playing fair is to know what the truth is so truth is really primary
0: yeah. well and completely disputed at this point for a couple of big reasons right one is that the internet is set up to reward clicks and outrageous upsetting non-truth gets a lot more clicks than sober and realistic actual truth
1: that's- yeah and complex truth as well that's right and Truth is ultimately truth. Descriptions of truth are contingent, partial, postmodern, and all the rest of that. But truth is still truth. So I think part one of three of my half of an idea is to really honor truth and treat it as sacred and really have that stand forth front and center so that any kind of attack on truth, this goes to my second part of my three-part half-baked idea, Any attack on truth is confronted immediately right then and there, without getting into the substance of it all, necessarily. Without getting into it, the bad faith attack on truth, the lie is immediately disqualifying. A deliberate lie is immediately disqualifying for any kind of leadership role. And that's what's confronted immediately. So for me, the second part of this is to really stand up and make the moral argument, much as we would with our children, tell the truth. Lies are bad. Lies are immoral. The root of evil is the lie. Attacking people's confidence in the evidence of their own senses is arguably the most despicable thing a person can do. And so for me, there's the moral part here. It's to stand up for truth-telling and to confront people who don't tell the truth as the primary point of the interview, on CNN, of the op-ed piece, of what is said in a town hall, it's to confront lying right up front immediately. I think that's really important. And then the last bit of a notion I have about this, the third of my three part half-baked plan. Okay, number one, value truth, recognize the importance of truth. Two, claim the moral authority and confidence to confront lying and to go right after that as the root condition, as the most immediate thing. If people are hurting children, for example, that's the thing you really go out quickly. No, no, don't hit the kid, don't hurt the kid, in kind of by analogy here, quit lying, quit falsifying, quit disrupting the capacity to see what's really true. Okay, the third one, it's just an observation. I've been in the do-gooder world for quite a while, and I'm struck by a fact that at the level of the marketplace, people will compete very aggressively for business purposes, but at the level of public policy, These corporate raiders, fat cats, boardroom types will pull resources in a blink of an eye for common cause in terms of influencing public policy fairly or unfairly through lobbying and through other means. They'll share resources. They'll pull resources. By contrast, people involved in kind of socially good enterprises, maybe companies with a big heart, nonprofits, organizations, campaigns of various kinds, they tend to be really friendly with each other at the local level. They're cooperative. They party together. They have a good time together, but they almost never pull resources. It's really remarkable. I've been on multiple boards. I've had this conversation with multiple executive directors. They nod along. And then when I say, you know, obviously you and fill in the blank with a thousand other organizations have common cause with regard to fill in the blank. Something that might, you know, be as fundamental or simple as reducing carbon emissions or educating all children, including girls worldwide. So how would you feel about pooling resources in some small way, evaluated, reevaluated it by your board every year towards some good thing so that you can actually compete and scale up to have a prayer of competing with standard oil? or ExxonMobil or any other giant, giant corporation, including ones that we've never even heard of that have enormous influence in the world. And these people in the social good world have no interest in pooling resources. And I think that's crazy. I think we need to pool resources. And one of my own fantasies is that thousands of organizations worldwide would pool their resources toward a particular kind of change that would be highly leveraged and catalytic and lead to, over the course of a generation, far sweeping changes from there. For example, the commitment to no child being hungry would lead to a whole host of other kinds of changes. If the adults in the human tribe made a fundamental commitment to that, maybe supported by, as I'm saying, a number of good organizations pooling their resources together toward that end. Another similar generationally changing intervention would be a commitment to educating all children, including girls, worldwide, and just bang away on that problem for the next 35 years. I think that would also be one of those kinds of things that could really make things a lot better. So I'm not particularly attached to what those highly leveraged catalytic interventions might be, that would be game changers for the human species over the next generation or two. But I do really feel that it's time for organizations that do have common values to actually pool resources together at the level of the dollars, the Benjamins, as it's said, in terms of what's on the U.S. $100 bill, and be really committed in a long-term strategy to actually making this world better for most of the people that live here.
0: Thanks for sharing that vision, Rick. There's a lot to say about that. You mentioned that you're working on the Neurodharma book. So can you just let us know what that will be about when it comes out? Oh, that's kind. Well, this book's about seven practices.
1: And the seven are kind of clusters of practices that organize major themes that I've seen in my own Buddhist training. And I also see in other paths of development and awakening, including secular ones. And these seven practices also are opportunities to apply what's increasingly well known about how the underlying hardware works in the body, the nervous system, and especially the brain, so that through understanding how those practices have their underlying biological neurological correlates, we can deliberately work the machine. We can deliberately, through mental practices, Stimulate and in the process of that, strengthen the underlying neural basis for these wholesome, transformative qualities of mind. So that's the overall idea. Thus, the title Neurodharma, which may not survive my publisher. Anyway, the seven practices, really simply, I talked about them with you in the last podcast, and you were kind enough to let me blather on, probably overly long, but there you have it. I'm very enthusiastic about this (laughs) material, so I do tend to rattle on about it. I won't right now. I'll just say them here, and there's almost something incantatory about saying them, and each of these practices is something you can engage at a basic level and engage it increasingly profoundly, and they all kind of work together. So... The seven are steadying the mind so you can think of all the material that would fit under that heading second warming the heart third resting in fullness by which i mean moving from the second to the third noble truth in buddhism moving out of the craving that creates so much suffering and harm into an ongoing increasingly unconditional sense of contentment and love and peace already as the next moment arrives so that's resting in fullness those first three are i think of them kind of foundational and relatively familiar steadiness lovingness and fullness and then on the basis of that we move into what i call softening into wholeness in which we accept ourselves fully we become comfortable with opening all the doors and all the rooms in the mansion of the mind and in our own practice we increasingly start experiencing things as a whole We start having a sense of our body as a whole as we breathe, abiding as a whole body breathing. We start moving out into the sense of consciousness, the stream of consciousness, including awareness as one whole process that is undivided. It includes many elements within it, many eddies in the stream of consciousness, and still there is one whole stream experienced moment by moment. And then in the fifth practice, I call it receiving nowness. As we spoke earlier, we come increasingly close to the front edge of now. We engage practices that have to do with tolerating impermanence radically. And neurologically, there's some really neat things you can do, as you know, and we've talked about this before, about moving into what's called pre-operational or before operational ality and abstracting in the stream of consciousness, where in terms of the aggregates, you're resting mainly in the form aggregate, even before the feeling tone and perception and definitely the mental formations have had a chance to arise and with them, the sense of self. So you're... right there. I think of it a little bit as like a airplane, a jet plane moving through the sound barrier. You know, before you crash through the sound barrier, it's it's noisy. But when you get to the other side, it's quiet because all the noise is behind you. And it's like that when you come right into the edge of now. The sixth practice I call opening into allness. That's where You start experiencing what you know conceptually to be true, that you really are, your body really is, just a local expression of nature altogether on planet Earth. You know conceptually that your moment of experience is a local expression of what your body is doing, as well as all the other cultural and other psychological influences flowing through you. And what happens is you open into the felt sense of allness the self-world boundary starts falling away. You have more of a sense of interdependent arising. This is where we kind of release the contraction of self increasingly as one continues being a person that is a particular eddy in the larger stream of life and culture, eventually dissipating and dispersing as all eddies do, this particular person. That's opening into allness. And then in the seventh practice, I really want to take, what the Buddha taught about the unconditioned for real. And to kind of frankly reclaim that in Buddhist practice, not making myself important, it's more like just saying, hey, the Buddha thought there really was an unconditioned, meaningfully distinct language breaks down, of course, when we point at the unconditioned, but meaningfully distinct from the conditioned natural universe, which includes a lot of wild stuff, but still. It's presumably due to natural causes that do not require any supernatural or transcendental factors to fully explain them. So in the seventh practice, I call it finding timelessness because one of the qualities of unconditionality is that it's not impermanent and thus eternal and timeless. And so there are practices that we can engage that help us develop deepening intimations of unconditionality. And there, I think it's really useful to explore in natural conditioned reality, that which is plausibly like aspects of the unconditioned, specifically the sense of possibility through which conditioned actuality moves or is a field in which conditioned actuality can occur. Also a sense of wholeness or spaciousness rather in which things appear that's like unconditionality stillness, which is like the timelessness of unconditionality, and to the extent that in your own view of things, consciousness and even potentially love are attributes of the transcendental, as many have taught. Uh, the Buddha did not go there, and still, as many have taught, thus grounding as radically as possibly into awareness, simply awareness is like potentially the consciousness of the transcendental. And in this way as well, being lived increasingly by a love that is not your own, or it feels like it's bigger, even beyond your own personal love, could also be a way of engaging something that is possibly like the transcendental, and thus a doorway into it. So that's the material of the book that I'm working on very enthusiastically. I have no idea if anybody else wants to read it, but man, am I geeked out about this material.
0: I think your publisher should go with the title Neurodharma. That's a great title. When would this come out if we May, 2020. May, 2020. All right, Rick, thanks for coming again on the show.
1: Michael, it's so cool to do this with you. And I can see why this is such a great podcast because you really mess with people in a wonderful way.
0: Thanks, Rick. It's great having you on. That's it for this episode of Deconstructing Yourself. I'd like to let you know about an upcoming retreat I have available in the first half of 2024. This April, I'll be teaching a six-day residential retreat at Mount Madonna Center in the hills of Northern California. From April 14th to the 19th, I'll be leading practitioners in non-dual meditation techniques, guided meditations, and silent sitting with the group. So if you'd like to spend six days working on deepening your spiritual practice and particularly working on your non-dual meditation with me and a group of interested folks, please consider joining me at Mount Madonna this April. Just go to the deconstructingyourself.com slash events page and follow the links you find there. I look forward to seeing you at the retreat. There will also be a meditation retreat with me coming up this August in Costa Rica. You can find out more about that at the same deconstructingyourself.com slash events page. If you enjoyed the podcast, please recommend it to a friend or talk about it on social media. Doing that helps it find its way to more people who might be interested. If you're moved to support the podcast, you can do that by contributing to the production costs on my Patreon page. That's at patreon.com slash michaeltaft. The money goes to support the recording, production, and bandwidth costs of this program, which are substantial. By contributing to Patreon, you're making it possible for me to continue to create and share these conversations as often as possible. A special perk for high level contributors is a monthly or even bi-monthly event with me on zoom, where you can ask me any meditation questions you have. I deeply appreciate your support. I also have a number of free resources for you beginning with my YouTube channel. There are hundreds of hours of free guided meditations and videos there, So if you're interested, that's quite a large resource and offered to you completely free of charge. The channel address on YouTube is MWT111, or you can just search my name, Michael Taft. I encourage you to subscribe to the channel and join me each week for a new live guided meditation session.